Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know the drill, you know how this works. So this week in our continuing uh, examination of great horror movies um, for the Halloween season and beyond, Mike picked Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski's terrific 1968 uh, film based upon Ira Levin's novel. We had both seen it before, of course, because it's a movie that everyone's seen, but we both just rewatched it uh, within the last 24 hours for the podcast. We've never discussed it before. In part one, we always talk about our overall um, takes from the film. So Mike, what was your overall take, your overall Im impression from watching it again? When we talked about Hereditary, we talked about an emerging talent that really knows how to use the camera, where to put the camera. But I mean, I, doesn't it make you feel like Polanski was born with a camera? You know, this is just from, first of all, from the director's point of view, like a, a one fun fact about this movie is that um, Polanski called up Ira Levin and asked him which issue of The New Yorker he was talking about. You know, when um, when the husband comes home with the shirt? Yeah. Because he said, I want I want to make sure we got the right shirt. And yeah. Ira Levin was like, I made that up. I'm just trying to make, you know, <laughs> that's just a middle-class detail that I thought would be funny. But Polanski was obsessive about trying to get the look and feel of this movie right. And some contemporary reviews of the film, I think really captured that, which is basically they said, if you're not in on, uh, in on the joke here, if you're not following along the existential dread, you just think that this is, is just kind of a, a movie about how much he hates yuppies and trying to get the audience to admit how much they hate yuppies too, you know, which is where it seems like the movie is going. And it is going there, but it's not taking the route you think it's taking. Right, because of course the whole joke is that, well, I would live in a place where they found a dead baby and where these sisters used to do sacrifices, but because it, it has a nice fireplace. Absolutely, for that breakfast nook, I would. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's what's hilarious about, you know, the, the joke of the satire is on Guy and about actors, you know, actors are very self-centered people, we're told. Yeah, they sure are. But really the joke is, you. the joke is on readers of The New Yorker too. Oh yeah, this is just Zillow porn. You know, this is almost exactly <laughs> like our episode on... Um, yeah, it's exactly like Parasite in that same way, you know, where where it's it's very much about um, the interior lives of people that care very much about exteriors. Yeah, and that's why it's so great because you know he used the Dakota for the exteriors of the film. But you know, one one thing that occurred to me watching it this time is that the apartment is really a star, and that you know the apartment is, is deserves at least a best supporting actor, uh, you know, for this film because it's all the and the whole movie. So much of it takes place in there, and it also reminded me of what you said about Hereditary. And I'm sure we'll talk about the the big reveal stuff later on if I know you, but. Um, it also occurred to me that we talked about how um, Ari Aster made Midsummer, which is supposed to be a horror movie in broad daylight. It also occurred to me how much that also applies to this. I mean, this is not a movie where witches meet, like The Witch, which is a terrific movie we did in season one. This is all in broad daylight, middle of Manhattan, in, in as posh a neighborhood as you can get. Well, that's what's so frightening about it, right? Because Mia Farrow is on the phone and yes. she's trying to call I, I mean, let's first of all talk about how stacked this movie is, not, not just its director. This movie is stacked top to bottom. There's no bad actors. There's not one single even out of place bit actor. No. Even the secretary, even the secretary for the evil doctor is good. Even I would say, I want to give a shout out to Patsy Kelly. Patsy Kelly is the one that plays Laura Louise who sticks her tongue out at her at the end. Like, nah, and she's the one with the bad glasses who comes over and she's like, well, did you have a period yet? And she reminded me exactly of Francis McDormand in Raising Arizona. Like, well, he's gotta have his dip tet. You know, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be carrying the, the Antichrist, he's gotta have his Antichrist dip tet. She was perfect. Everybody, 
I mean, everybody, everybody in this yeah. movie is good. Performances are so good. I mean, let's go back to some things that we've talked about on the show. Okay. Uh, talk about characters that actually are frightened. Yes. You know, this is not, um, uh, who what's the name of the actor that plays the husband? John Cassavetes. Yeah. Yeah, the famous director too, yeah. Let's talk, exactly. Let's talk about his performance as not being able to look her in the face, right? Because there's there's two ways you can play it. You can play it totally nonchalant, or you can play it the way that they would play it in 2020, which is he's been evil all along. You know, aren't those middle-class husbands evil? But right. the way that they played it is, I am, I'm really doing it for you, but I'm really doing it for me. And I can't, I just can't look at you. It's so convincing and so beautiful. Absolutely. I could have watched him just like chew gum and walk around. He was so good because his, and you're, and what I loved about the movie is that a thing like, you know, when you see this movie the first time and you're in middle school, it just, it's all like devil, 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 devil. But then when you're older, you appreciate all the real estate and things like that and the careerism, right? But what I loved about John Cassavetti's performance is that he, he, you know, it's very hard to play an actor playing an actor. And sometimes you have to play an actor who's like a very good actor and things like that. So he, his character of Guy is an actor who knows his audience. And his audience is Rosemary, right? She's the waif who goes around. I mean, how many times does she say, oh, he was in Luther and nobody loves an albatross. And he knows exactly how to play it. And when you watch the film again, you know, he's so convincing because he's his, we know that he's acting, but she doesn't first. So when he's like, oh, you know, he's on the phone with them, you know, with uh, uh, the, the guy who went blind, you know, oh, it's a hell of a way to get it. And then every single thing he does with Rosemary is part of his act. Like, let's have a baby. And, and uh, you know, she says it has a chalky undertaste. And he insists that she eats it. He talks off her dizziness, right? As soon as he learns that she's pregnant, he has to run and tell, you know, Minnie and Ronan, um, the way he gets rid of Dr. Hill. Uh, you know, Dr. Shand plays the recorder. Like, he, he's such a good actor to her that it's a joy to watch John Cassavetes play a guy playing a guy, if that makes sense. Now, speaking of bit parts, let's talk about who was on the phone playing Donald Baumgart. Go ahead. The incomparable Tony Curtis. Yes. Who does, who does more in this movie with less? He takes over that entire scene just with his voice with eight lines. And I was listening to it this time. I didn't realize that he's the voice on the phone. Is that Tony Curtis? <laughs> and it is. And it is. All right, let's talk about our favorite moments in the next part. Okay. We're gonna pause here because we just wanna tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. All right, welcome back to part two. You know the drill. Dan, what's your moment go? Here's my moment. My moment is when um, they have to convince her that they don't want uh, Dr. Hill, they want Abe Sipperstein, Ralph Bellamy. Like, again, like, what in the world is Ralph Bellamy doing in this movie, and why is he so good at it? Because he is forever fixed in my mind from his girl Friday, but here he is as the, the obstetrician to the Satan of stars. Anyway, here's my moment. Ruth Gordon, you talked about how good the camera is. She goes in the other room in the bedroom to call Abe, 
to make sure that he's going to be her obstetrician, right? Because they have to make this happen, right? And she's, she's doing her Ruth Gordon thing. So much of her performance seems um, improvised. She goes through playing a little busybody, smothering old lady, right? But there's a great, great bit and I, that I actually stopped the movie and rewatched it, where she's hanging up the phone with him and she goes, okay, okay, you know, okay, yeah, okay, sweetheart, I hope you're not going to charge, you know, your crazy uh, celebrity prices. And then she goes, uh, no, 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 not at all. Uh, well, let's hope so. And she hangs up. Now, of course, once you're in on a joke, which, which Polanski lets you in on halfway through the movie as opposed to the end, like you would expect in a movie made now, right? I love that because when you think about it again, that means Abe said to her, well, does she suspect anything? And then she goes, no, 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 not at all. And then, and then he must say something like, well, I hope she can you know, bring the baby to term. And she goes, yeah, yeah, let's hope so. And what was so great about that moment, it reminds me how little it takes to trick Rosemary. It reminds me how little it takes to trick us and about how this movie, like so many movies we love, Mike, is all about um, being manipulated by the withholding of information. And that there's different moments where you catch up to Rosemary, where Rosemary catches up to Guy, um, and things like that. So I just think that beautiful little throwaway line is, is a great indicative of how the whole movie works. All right, well, I just want to remind our, our viewers that we don't, our viewers, our listeners, that we don't talk about this ahead of time. Okay. Um, because here's, here's my moment. My moment is re-watching the scene uh, where uh, her husband and Rosemary's husband go in and sit on the couch. And while Rosemary's drying the dishes, she turns around and she sees the puffs of smoke from yeah. the gentleman sitting on the couch. Now, once you've watched the movie, you know that what's happening on the couch is he's saying, you're so underrated, I can make your wildest dreams come true. And here's how. And that entire dialogue is done silently, only through the way that the smoke is moving through the hallway. And <laughs> Mary's thinking, wow, I'm stuck in here. Isn't it nice to be a guy because they get to drink and smoke after dinner and, and do whatever they want to do. And, and little does she know, you know, if you think it's diabolical that she's got to wash the dishes rather than being on the conversation, you don't even know the meaning of the word because what's going on in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in their sitting room. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great thing. Is that like, like, of course, like that, you would think that would be a great scene to play, a great scene to write. Like if you're John Cassavetes, like how great would it be to play that scene where you actually sell sell your child to the devil? But um, you don't even get it. All you get is some smoke. Like you get the white smoke to say there's a, a pope, and you get the smoke in the in the apartment to say there's going to be the antichrist. All right, good. Let's jump to part three. Okay. So welcome back. Here we are in part three, where we like to talk about the ending or the title or our big takeaways about the ending. What an ending, Mike, go. Okay, so first of all, let's let's note that the, the best thing about the reveal in this movie is that it's not the reveal. The reveal is the moral disgust on the part of the viewer and on the part of the Rose, and on the part of Rosemary lies in John Castavetes as her husband uh, turning her in and manipulating her and, and at, not being her protector, not being on her team. Clearly he sells her out for his career because it's you know good for both of them, right. whatever that means. And there's a, that bit of information is given to you because the emotion that the movie wants you to have is a deep moral disgust until you get to the end, wherein at the end, it shows you exactly what it would take to get you to turn over. Because at the, and, and that brings me really into a point that we made about another movie, which is why I don't like the end of Hereditary, but I love the end of this movie because you're really with Rosemary as a viewer in the room all the way through. You're still on her side, 
she is a she's she's the totem she's the the center the moral center for the viewer to be in the room you know the, the thing that again that i didn't like about the end of hereditary is it's really just kind of like hand wringing about you know this coming devil revolution now that whoever's in the world but everybody's on the same side the viewer's gone there's no totem for the viewer to take part in the scene whereas rosemary is she's told to sit down as you said the, the satanists are just they're so fantastic. Everything that's implied about the middle-class existence of a Satanist and hereditary is unbelievably explicit in Rosemary's Baby and both horrifying and funny at the same time. There's rich tourists in from, you know, from other nations, from Greece yeah. and from Japan. Yeah, um, pictures. It's done, it's done absolutely brilliantly. And it implies an international flavor to this conspiracy, but it also gives you a rationale for the conspiracy, which we do not get in hereditary. Which is what what you know what Abe says when he stands yes. up um, is that essentially this is revenge for the Inquisition. Yes. You know that that they've been forced underground, that they've been burned, that they've been killed, and it's not just during you know this. Is, you might think that that's um, an implication that's way too far back in history to matter to this movie, but that's what happens to um, to the guy's dad, right? As people find out that he's a magician and they they slaughter him outside, they can't allow him to live, and so this is. It's the it's the internal logic of the conspiracy working on one character, and it ends at exactly the right moment. It ends at the moment that Rosemary seemingly gives in, or she's at least not going to struggle, and then there's no way for the viewer to hold on anymore. And with that, on that note, we're cast out of the movie, and it, it's total, it's over. Yeah. And I find that so creepy. I find it so. By dissatisfying, I don't mean unsatisfying. I mean the opposite of satisfaction. It's not what you want. It leaves a taste in your mouth that says, maybe I got to watch that movie again to understand it. And I think that the brilliance of this movie is in being made for, for rewatching. Everything about this movie is, being, is made for rewatching and everything is exemplified in, in its brilliant ending. Well, I think as, as, as to, to, to quote Churchill, sir, that was your finest hour right there. I think that, you know, here's, here's my take on the ending, because I, of course, thought of, of our argument about Hereditary, too. It's funny that this has the, the you know, um, in Hereditary, we talked about the quote unquote, the treehouse scene where Joan explains everything. Paymon needs a male host and stuff. Well, this gives you the treehouse scene right in the middle and like, and like gets it out of the way in the same way you reminded me of how in Vertigo, Hitchcock puts the secret, the big reveal, the treehouse scene in the middle of the movie, so then you could watch the fallout from it, right? And that's like a really cool way to structure the second half of the movie because in the middle of Vertigo, you should say, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Like even when Janet Lee dies in Psycho, you should wait, wait a minute, there's a, there's a movie after this or something, right? So I think that's really good that she does all the movie things in the middle you would expect when she's like, you know, they planned everything right for the beginning. Uh, they probably made some sort of deal with Guy and they gave him success and he promised him our baby to use the rituals, right? And she explains like getting Hitch's glove and, and all this stuff, she explains it all, right? Now that would be at the end of a movie, right? That's supposed to be the big, the big where Rosemary figures it out and then something happens. They kill her or, um, or uh, she, she calls the Pope who's in town or something happens, but that is not what we get because then when we get to the ending, you know, the whole film is her trying to break out of this confined space that she's in. Like God keeps maneuvering her into a, into a, a corner, right? Um, you know, don't, you don't need those vitamins. Uh, you know, when her friends are talking to her, like don't listen to those bitches, you know, when she looks terrible with her haircut and stuff. So the whole movie is them trying to put this dome over her 
and her trying to break out of the dome. And that's why I think the phone booth scene is so good because she's literally enclosed in a, in a tight, tight spot. And that's metaphorically what happens during the whole movie. So Dr. Cyprusine says like, don't read anything. Don't read any books. Don't take any vitamins and all these things. So the whole movie is her trying to break out of a bubble that we know she's in, but then at the end, she either decides to stay in the bubble or accept the bubble or we don't really know what's happened to her. All we know is, you know, he has his father's eyes and, and there's that moment. And if the movie went on for another five seconds, maybe we would know, but it doesn't. And I think that's what's great is that it's, it's we're not, we, we are profoundly like um, dissatisfied like in, in the best way. Absolutely. And I think that this is true. I mean, we've talked about the difference between a horror film and a, and a monster movie. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and and one rough definition that we've used is whether it comes for you or you or you go after it. Yeah. And I think that this, um, you know, a lot of a lot of horror movies turn into monster movies, right? You, sure. The monster is revealed, and then you, you got to do something, and, and sort of the the theme of the movie changes. You know, something is wrong in this movie from the time you're right. So the the, the scene where Hutch comes over and then says, "Hey, I got to talk to you privately." Yeah. That would be the denouement of a film today, but it's right. not the denouement. It's it's something to let you know that this that we're not in the turn of the screw territory. The an, the answer to whether something's going on or not, the, the movie's going to tell you what's up, yes. but it's going to make you sit through it. And then the moment that you think that Rosemary is going to take back her agency, she's yes. got a she's With got a point. knife. She's got a knife. She's coming through the hallway, right? It's like an I am legend moment where now the satanists turn around and they're they're afraid to see her suddenly appear through a doorway with a knife in her hand. Um, you know, it's it's too late. They've gotten to a place too deep inside her where the rationale for their way of thinking has become totally clear to them. And it's, you know, again, part of the movie is to say that your surroundings, your your focus determines your reality. Your surroundings will change you. Yep. So the, the, the horror of this movie is that she's not the Rosemary from the beginning because that, that Rosemary would never rock the cradle, but she's gonna go rock the cradle. Yeah. And that I think is so, think about what this movie does with just a few minutes, right? Hutch is only in this movie for a few minutes. He's, he's in one scene at the beginning and then he's some kind of voice on the phone and then he's physically in their apartment. And the, the physical on-screen wrongness of him walking around their apartment, right? Of, of, of the comparison of the creepy next door neighbor Satanist who's got the thing in his ear and who was standing naked chanting over her bed with the well-intentioned grumpy old guy who really has her best interests at heart, right? Yep. The, side by side, you can see that something's wrong. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and where the moral decision comes from for Rosemary to join them, um, that contrast is so starkly made. But as you said, an hour into the film with a character who's only on screen for maybe 15 minutes total. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. And that's what's brilliant is that, is, that, is that 99 times out of 100, the movie would lead up to the reveal at the end. But, this, but, but there's a the bigger reveal is much more disturbing and much more puzzling, which is her ambiguity at the end when she looks at the baby. And, so, and, it's, and it's all based on the viewer's intelligence. It's, yeah. all be, it, it's only an intelligent viewer that's tricked because you think you're going along and you're, taking, you're, you're smart enough to take what the movie's giving you, yep. which is exactly the trap. Yes, and exactly. And, what, and, and it's such a pleasure to be trapped by movies that way. I can't say enough good things about this movie. All I can say is that this is one of those movies which is um, sometimes uh, better spoken about than watched or more spoken about than watched. Um, and if that's the case, if, if Rosemary's Baby is just kind of like a name that's out there about of, of, in art horror um, or you're not watching it for whatever reason, 
I would encourage you to yeah. just sit down and, and take a viewing because it's well worth the hour and a half of your life. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't say it more. And I'll ask you one more question, Mike. When we form our, our thrash metal band, what are we going to call it? All them witches. All of them witches. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Rosemary's Baby. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at 15MIN Film. And also leave us a review on, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. <laughs>